You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey there, this is Tristra Newyer Jaeger, lead writer and strategist at Rock, Paper, Scissors, the music tech PR firm. I am once again your irregular host for this episode of the Music Tectonics podcast. So we're really lucky today. We have a really cool guest with us. Um, he is from Vivo. JP Evangelista is uh, Vivo's senior vice president of content, programming, and marketing. And in this role, JP oversees Vivo's original content production, music programming, editorial, talent, events, label relations, and social teams globally. He works closely with artists, managers, major, and indie record labels. He's seen the company grow and evolve from day one. JP was one of several UMG folks tasked with building out the Vivo platform and helping launch the company. So you've been a very, very busy guy the last few years. JP, thanks for taking time away from all of those uh, many tasks to, for, and to, uh, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. So first up, how did you get into music? Um, it is rare in this business to meet someone who didn't get into music first before they got into the business. I'd love to hear your story. Yeah, so I guess you could sort of divide it into personal and professional. On the, on the personal side, uh, growing up, my grandfather was a professional saxophonist and my mom was a professional tap dancer. So just by lieu of family, music's always been in my life. I uh, grew up performing on stage in lots of like local community musicals. And then by the time that I was at NYU, I started managing uh, an indie rock band and booking them across Manhattan and Brooklyn. And that really brings me up pre-Universal Music Group, you know, and professional side of my music career. Uh, when I joined UMG uh, circa 2007 at this point, holding various positions there, global digital initiatives uh, department there, doing a lot of um, a lot more actually in the beginning of the tech-based side, uh, artist website management, uh, building out of ad networks, stuff like that. And that all eventually transitioned into being part of the first team uh, to work on Vivo at all um, at UMG back in 2009. Um, and just learning and growing with the company over the course of the past 12 or so years. It's amazing to hear about uh, your background. And it's interesting to hear your mom was a, was a tap dancer. So like music and visual performance or some kind of um, visual iteration of music was always, it sounds like it was always important to you. Yes. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Um, even <laughs> on, I guess you can characterize it on the sillier side, like of every performance that we would do and both her and I like would co-produce like community musicals together in our neighborhood and like the tape review and, and everything else of how everyone's moving on stage and, and being able to give feedback like that, obviously um, something that we used to cherish doing together, but translating into, you know, picking apart when we're looking at original content clips, different time segments that we think should be different and all that sort of stuff. So it's always been both music and visual for me. That's really cool. Um, so the a lot of people think they know what Vivo is, and I think we should start out our conversation just by laying down, you know, since you were there at the inception, so to speak, um, sort of if you could describe how it started and um, where we are now. So let's just start with where, where we started. What was Vivo originally? What was the intent? Yeah, I mean, Vivo was and is the, the world's largest music video network. Um, the intent was to place a, a premium around a collection of music videos um, through our founders, both Universal, Sony, and our other licensors, to, to really bring premium value back to the music videos and medium. Understanding that you know high quality music video content commands 
quite the audience. And I'm sure at some point in this, we'll get into some of the numbers. But to ensure that much like other um, digital and television advertisers, that it was being monetized at an appropriate level, that having this collection of now close to 500,000 music videos together at all these different endpoints, um, both, you know, desktop, mobile, and connected television, that it was getting the appropriate level of curation, editorial, so full promotional value out of it. And at the same token that it's being fully commercialized correctly and in line with other premium programming that you would see on, you know, say traditional broadcast television. And where is Vivo now? How has it changed over the many years? I think we've, you know, lived up to our mission to maximize the commercial and promotional value of music video. We're currently sitting at, you know, an average uh, average view count value of around 300 billion views a year. Um, where it's changed over the years, I mean, those numbers have grown to the point where they are now. And we saw very explosive periods of growth between, you know, 2009 to 2018 to get to those thresholds. And you get to a certain threshold of that many views, and it gets a little tough to continue to grow from there. So, Lots of strategies in place to continue to grow those numbers on a monthly basis. But from a music video consumption perspective, um, the device landscape has changed pretty heavily over the course of the past 11 or 12 years. We used to see a majority of all of our viewing occurring on desktop, so desktop PCs and laptops. That, about four or five years in, really shifted to mobile consumption. And what we've seen in the last two years has been a bit of a decay of mobile consumption and a transference to the connected television where now approximately one third of all of our consumption occurs on a connected television app like, you know, Samsung TV plus or Roku, something of that nature. Outside of that, the industry has changed in the last 12 years. I mean, there was no huge DSPs, even in the audio space at the time that Vivo launched, so to speak. I mean, you used to have really Apple and iTunes from a purchase perspective dominating the marketplace back when we launched and really before YouTube took flight back in 09 and, and how it grew over time versus now where you sit with multiple music services, everyone competing for people's attention, you know, Spotify, you know, posting the numbers that it does, Apple Music, Amazon, um, other content that competes with us directly on YouTube. So the landscape has shifted uh, quite dramatically over time. Um, our mission has always remained the same. This um, that's that's really interesting, and the change from device from the mobile, and then now back people sort of broad, broad, you know, casting things onto their television or the connected TV um, change that's underway. I'm wondering if you could speak to how that has um, impacted the way music videos work as part of the music business or just as creative uh, modes of creative expression. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's it's a sort of interesting return. Like in our view, music video is always destined for the living room. It's it's where it was initially born. If you look back to the origins of MTV, and it's sort of gone through different phases of evolution to wind up back on a a large screen again in people's homes. Um, as far as the creation of music video, I'm not sure that you know artist specific level of creativity has changed that much. It's always been a very very creative medium. You see some of the you know the best directors coming out of the medium as sort of where they got their chops. Um, but specifically with the change to CTV, I, I guess the one thing that would sort of be said of music video consumption on it, as it would for other things, is it's longer session length time of viewership. So you get these average view times of per session of 45 minutes to an hour. Whereas when you're consuming on mobile, it's much more snackable, call it like snackable bus stop content where you're consuming one video 
close the app, you're out and you come back later versus these more extended um, sessions that we see from users now. That's really interesting. Um, 2020 was a really interesting year in that maybe in that contrast between snackable versus longer viewing sessions. A lot of things changed. And I was wondering if you could speak to that from Vivo's perspective. What have you seen um, in the past year or so in terms of um, media consumption and how it's changed? Yeah, I mean, as as lockdown sort of took hold, that's when we first saw some of our largest spikes in connected television viewership. So, and and just for clarity, connected television viewership, you know, IP based television apps like I sort of mentioned before, Roku, Samsung TV Plus, Vizio, Comcast, etc. But we saw like a twenty seven percent increase in CTV viewership. You know, sort of right at the bat, um, middle of March into April of last year, and that continued up through the end of the year. So previously mentioned 33% of total U.S. views for Vivo, um, nearly doubling our 2019 CTV figures. Um, We also saw a change in behavior where, you know, across our different channels, there was a lot more co-viewing between people. We have that as a trackable sort of metrics of multiple people watching in the household together. And beyond that, something that we found uh, quite interesting and this used to be true of music-specific events, but this was more true of the calendar itself last year, was that the holiday season broke you know, some records on our end. So New Year's Eve, the most viewed day of the year on connected television for us and you know, our history in the U.S. ever. Um, same thing can be said of you know, Christmas Eve and Thanksgiving. So we saw you know, in the millions, in the very high millions, you know, 75 million plus in the CTV viewership side, but just overall um, network patterns that were... Finally seeing um, some consistency in days where the overall network would break a billion views. And that happened, you know, more than 20 times last year across our set of content. Wow. How how do those um, pretty di- you know interesting changes map onto some of the other, the changes in the two industries that, that you touch on? So um, if you could, I mean, I, again, I, you, I don't expect you to have like 100% of the statistics at your fingertips, JP, but if you could talk a little bit about how that maps onto connected TV viewing and um, streaming video on demand type viewing in general, and then how did it compare with the music business? I know the audio-only music streaming um, did see a decline initially in lockdown and then bounced back pretty significantly. I'm wondering how those how those how you see those trends from your perspective. You know, I don't think, you know, as you quote the, the audio stats, you know, sort of that decline, that that's incredibly surprising because, and it just depends, and I'm certainly no field expert in the consumption of, you know, DSP audio, you know, based platforms, but you think of a typical use case of people using that on the move versus transitioning to at home. And you would, you would imagine that CTV type viewership with the ability of different, you know, subscription VOD services at your fingertips. And you're now not suddenly commuting to work where you might be listening to music on the way there from a Spotify or an Apple could transition into more binge watching at home of different platforms or turning the Vivo channel on and watching an extended music video session. Um, It's, it's not surprising to see some of those rates return, but initially I think there was sort of um, just this adjustment to an at-home period. Um, we did everything sort of in our power during that period of time to really give artists opportunities to continue to be able to promote their music um, despite the inability to get out of home. So be it 
you know, hosting uh, different live stream sessions across our social media accounts and lending our followers to emerging artists who really didn't have a way to get their new music out there at that period of time, or adapting any of our original content to an at-home environment where we lended um, via Zoom and, and other modes of connecting our producers to each, you know, emerging artist we'd work with to actually help tape themselves at home to put out pieces of performance content. That's something that we really um, adapted to really quickly and worked very hard on throughout the course of last summer until we were able to start taping with artists in person again at our studios. Cool. Another really interesting new product or feature, I'm not sure exactly how you want to call it, JP, that you guys have launched recently is called Moods. And it's a really interesting intersection of AI, sentiment analysis, and music. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and how it came about and um, what you see its future as. What exactly does it do and what does it portend for music tech? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it was a fairly natural move for us to begin to work on moods. Um, I think you could look at it a variety of ways, but you know, simply it's you know AI-powered product that identifies and groups some of our music video, all of our music videos, if we so choose, by mood for more effective ad targeting. Ad targeting really isn't the only application of it. It also allows the programming team to go in and if they want to create, you know, certain mood-based playlists for either CTV consumption, for YouTube consumption, they're able to too. Um, but essentially takes um, through our partnership with Music's Match, moods off of the lyrics specifically and analyzes the energy of the song so that we can assign that metadata to the video itself and be able to create, you know, for advertising purposes, targeting buckets, or just for programming purposes, you know, lists and buckets of videos that would make sense thematically to exist in a playlist or a longer viewing session. Do you see any other interesting applications from Viva's perspective for that kind of sentiment analysis? You know, it's it's something that we're keeping pretty specific to the content at this point in time. Um, we we view the applications right now as, as heavily for the, the advertising-based community, for seamless contextual advertising, um, to align with the emotion of, you know, applicable advertising campaigns, be it something that an advertiser is running for Valentine's Day or Mother's Day. Um, but I think, you know, long-term, the deeper that we can get into it from the programming perspective and get more well-rounded metadata like moods and other attributes to add to our existing content set, it's just going to create a much more and more personalized experience for all of our users so that they're served eventually something very, very specific to them in their individual viewing session. Cool. So that's a pretty exciting uh, development. I'm wondering, what else are you excited about in the months to come? 2021 promises to be a very uh, interesting year where either people might be getting back out to live events, they may not be at home at, at home as much. Um, but what what are you what are you excited about? What do you what trends from the um, 2020 lockdown type period do you see continuing? Um, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly excited and hopeful that the live music scene is able to rebound. I know that they've been hurting hard. I have a lot of friends and colleagues that work in there and, you know, any return to having fans in in larger spaces safely, I think is going to be viewed as a huge win for the year overall. Um, From Vivo's perspective, you know, we've been able to pick up the filming of our original content more regularly, but just, you know, given the way that, you know, health and safety protocols have been enacted to date, some travel restrictions that have been an issue over the course uh, and a necessity over the course of the last year in certain aspects have prevented us from taping with all the artists we want to get to. 
And in a given year, we tape with more than 350 artists. We put out over 700 pieces of original content. We tape a lot on location. Um, getting back to a flow where we're able to provide opportunities with high performance, you know, high quality performance content on a weekly basis is something that both me and the entire team are incredibly excited for. That's an area that we really, you know, thrive and lead the industry in from a performance content perspective. And it's not that we've not been able to do, you know, some major things, including, you know, partnering with The Weeknd at the end of last year, recently partnering with Justin Bieber on a set of uh, performances that we call official live performances to help augment his upcoming album release. It's just that that frequency of flow and that consistency of opportunity, because we feel like we really are able to create a visual aid as artists are releasing, or that helps them gain additional viewing consumption ultimately helps their chart placement and all that sort of fun stuff, an additional marketing outlet for them that we haven't been able to do at the full breadth and, and scale of our capacity since this began. So just a return to that would be excellent. And then of course, like, you know, socializing and everything else getting very much back to normal as, as normalized as it can possibly be is, is something personally looking very forward to. I'm wondering what you think about keeping the music video experience in the living room. Will that be something that's here to stay? I mean, many of the habits we've picked up over the past year are habits that we like. Maybe they were born of necessity, but um, we enjoy uh, the way, I mean, I love what you were saying about having multiple viewers kind of gathered around enjoying uh, music videos together. Do you think we'll see a continuation of that now that people have gotten a taste for it? Or are you anticipating a return to mobile or what What do you, I'm not to make, I'm making you look in a crystal ball. So no one's going to hold you to these <laughs> wild predictions, but what what does it look like to you? I think that the connected television trends that you're seeing will continue to grow because, you know, we have the benefit of a ton of market research to suggest that it will. <laughs> um, you know, we're seeing more and more household device penetration, be it from, you know, a Roku device or Apple TV device or something similar that you're able to cast with, be it an Amazon Fire Stick or anything like that. So the more the more people that naturally get these devices in, in home, the more you're going to see all contents consumption rise with it. We happen to be a beneficiary of it right now, but there's the potential that other mediums see it as well. But yeah, I, I, I don't think that we're going to be cannibalized necessarily in viewership by the fact that people can go back out to shows. I think that's a completely different, um, even with co-viewing in the home, completely different experience being with 10, 15, 25,000 fans screaming together and having a great time enjoying your favorite artist. You know, that's, that's something that, you know, in, in my view, just my personal opinion is irreplaceable, but I don't think it'll come at the, with the return of that come at the expense of the viewing habits that we've seen thus far that people have developed. On the more challenging side, what do you think the music business will face that we'll have to overcome in the next couple months? What does 2020 hold in terms of challenges from your perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, same couple things, same vein, um, reopening, you know, getting back to networking is networking as normal. Has that completely shifted our live venues and all those sort of events opening successfully is, is, is the spread of the virus contained, all that sort of fun stuff. But I think largely something that, you know, we've been focused on that we see is a continued challenging trend that we try to help, you know, augment and help artists with is, and we sort of talked about this in the shift of the, the competitive landscape of the music industry itself over the last few years, the, the growth of algorithms and how you advocate for the appropriate support for an artist within them is something that we're heavily focused on. Um, be it a DSP where you could be an artist and get a ton of pickup on either Spotify or Apple, 
and you haven't had a lot invested on you know, the visual marketing nature of a campaign. So you might have trouble going out and selling tickets when venues reopen. You know, songs can get millions and millions of plays through an algorithm. And suddenly there's not a lot of development that's been done on getting fans to know that specific artist versus the track that's gained notoriety. So where we like to try to aid in that process, both with the way that we program, curate music videos and create original content is to fill that void and really give artists a face on screen to connect with fans and meet new audiences. I think that's a continued problem. I haven't seen anything to suggest that, you know, the growth of algorithmic plays is going to let up on any platforms. And that extends to the way that we work and optimize, you know, in the YouTube environment where we do a good majority of our viewing and trying to ensure that all artists have the tools at their disposal to get the most proportionate share of that, we'll call it algorithmic voice, to display their videos so that fans are discovering their music so that emerging artists aren't left behind. And then it's not just sort of a, you know, only superstars benefit in their own, you know, footprint of social media and other marketing aspects that it's sort of, we're able to help as many artists as we can get discovered. I love that idea of having an algorithmic advocate or maybe a, an algorithm advocate of, <laughs> uh, speaking for artists out there. Um, that's really, really amazing. What do you think about the future of the music video? Um, just to throw in a bonus question. Again, um, I'm making you get a little sci-fi here, JP, so uh, you can so you can get as as tangential as you want to get. But you know, we're moving to I, I love again from mobile to connected TV and now there's talk that maybe there's finally um, AR and VR coming into a more mainstream um, use. I'm not sure, you know, I mean, that, that has been um, talked about for the last 20 years. It's kind of like autonomous vehicles. It's always like a year or two away. Um, so, or 10 years away or something. Anyway, in the case of vehicles, but Anyway, I'm just curious what where you see music videos, uh, you know, are there new spaces they're going to be um, moving into? Are there new ways people might enjoy music video type content? Um, what do you what do you think? I, I think it's interesting that you raise the AR VR question. Um, it comes up often. Um, I, th I think I first probably had directors and video commissioners come in and sort of show the initial tech six, maybe seven years ago at this point. And I'd say probably until recently, I was fairly skeptical. That changed over Christmas when I got my first Oculus Quest 2. And I kind of <laughs> I kind of see the light at the end of how we could transition some portions of the medium. Cool. I think there's still a lot of work to be done to be able to develop content that sort of works in that medium. The idea of getting, you know, fans virtually live in venues in that, like to make it feel realer. But I think a lot of a lot of work has been done on the VR side tech-wise to bring the music video closer to being able to more regularly be produced for it. So that wouldn't be shocking, actually, to now say, I think in two years, <laughs> even though you always get the, in two years, it's going to be like X. Everybody's going to do it in two years. <laughs> it, it really feels like it might be two years away from me or less now, um, just from the, the amount of time that I've messed with the Quest 2 now. Um, and seeing, you know, other sports content and other stuff in it. So I, I think it's much closer, um, for regular, for regular rollout. I think it's going to take a long time. It's a very large industry. Um, and it's operated in the ways that it has for the creation of the music video, very specifically for a long time. That could be, you know, super high budget stuff or much more lo-fi stuff. Both are equally competitive in the marketplace now, which is great. Um, but from the actual creation of the video and the tech, I think, you know, we're still not quite there yet, but on the right path. 
Thanks. That's really, really cool. Um, Thanks so much for your time, JP, and for all your insights. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Trister New Year Jaeger uh, with JP Evangelista on the Music Tectonics podcast. Thank you so much. What's up, beautiful listeners? I've got a question for you. What do you want to hear next? Let me know at pages.musictectonics.com slash feedback. Suggest future guests and music tech topics you want to hear us cover and tell us how we're doing. Again, that's pages.musictectonics.com slash feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. You can dig deeper into this episode, learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, and sign up for our newsletter. Musictectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, on LinkedIn. Peace. You're listening to Music Tectonics.